As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce the Plus CBD Relief line of soft gels. Plus CBD Relief is the ideal way to help promote a healthy inflammatory response. Plus CBD Relief is doctor-formulated with recovery-supporting ingredients, including CBD, CBDA, and Levagen plus PEA. Relief soft gels help address minor everyday soreness, support joint function, and encourage recovery following strenuous activity. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. And with a 90-day satisfaction guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's Relief Soft Gels. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to delve into a subject that we, we've not really uh, touched upon. It's, a, it's an urgent subject uh, because it's a problem that may affect uh, as many as 1 in 10 Americans. Over 30 million Americans might be affected. Um, the book in question, intriguing title, The Danger Within Us. What are they talking about? Well, the subtitle is America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry and one man's battle to survive. And today we're going to talk to the author, investigative journalist, Gene Lenzer. Uh, Gene uh, has uh, written a lot of hard-hitting articles uh, about some of the excesses of uh, the uh, medical industry, and it is indeed uh, an industry. Uh, and in her latest book, uh, she focuses on medical devices. So, uh, without further ado, uh, welcome, Gene. It's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so we, we defined the, the scope of the problem. Uh, how did you get onto this uh, story? Because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge story. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently ran a story, I'm pretty sure you saw it, uh, that said that uh, more than 80% of medical devices, this is the headline, uh, have gained market entry under a standard dating from 1976. And this is in the news as we speak. Uh, they're really talking about revising that. Perhaps, you know, your your investigative reporting has been some of the impetus towards that. So, yes, the issue is that um, medical devices weren't regulated by the FDA until 1976. But at that time, there were already quite a few medical devices implanted in people's bodies, everything from pacemakers to artificial joints um, and surgical mesh and some other devices, uh, cataract lenses. So what the FDA did when it gained regulatory control over medical devices is it said, okay, these devices are already on the market in people. We're just going to grandfather all of them in. But what it did next is really concerning. 
they said that any new devices that are put onto the market for class one and two devices, those are the low risk and intermediate risk devices. And I'll return to that definition in a minute. Um, they said that any class one or class two lower intermediate risk devices could be quote cleared for approval to go onto the market without necessarily having to undergo any clinical testing at all. All the manufacturer has to do is tell the FDA, gee, our new device is similar or what they call substantially equivalent to a prior device that's already on the market that was grandfathered in. So there was no assurance, no testing for either safety or for efficacy all the company does is say, we've got a device that's sort of like this other device. And it's, the it's a little bit like saying, you know, that uh, if Boeing wanted to get approval for their new 787, they could say, uh, you know, we had a comparable device uh, that was uh, developed by the Wright brothers in 1903. And, you know, it, they well, all fly and are based on the same principles. Well, and what's really interesting is there are devices that have gone through more than 20 iterations. So it's a device predicated on another device predicated yeah. on another device. And you start out with an orange and end up with a side of beef. And so, you know, FDA itself has acknowledged that, you know, this is a bit of a telephone game, you know, where, where what you end up is not the same. It, it reminds but, me of the people in, in the Hamptons who uh, knock down uh, a, a teardown house and they leave like a chimney, and then they build this giant meadow mansion, and then they oh, somehow yeah. cheat the, the zoning principles because they say, well, basically, we just you know did a little alteration on, on the house. Well, you know, the, the, I want to return to the classification of class one and two. Class two devices include quite a few serious implantable devices, devices that have been associated with serious adverse events and deaths. And in fact, these low and intermediate risk devices account for more than 80% of all of the most serious kinds of recalls. These are recalls that the FDA itself says are recalls due to a, and this is their word, probable cause of serious adverse events or death. So these low and intermediate risk implanted devices can be very serious, and we think that they ought to be clinically tested before they're put on the market, any implanted device. But I want to get to something else, yep. and that is high-risk uh, devices, class 3 devices. Those high-risk devices include things like pacemakers, defibrillators, biologically active spine implants. Hmm. Um, those <clears throat> devices, most of them are also not clinically tested because once they are clinically tested as the initial device, there's another loophole, and it's called the supplement pathway. So most new approvals are not through the original PMA pathway. It's actually through this other loophole where, once again, the company gets to say, well, we're making a change to our device, but it's not really an important change. So I'll give an example of what yep. that has resulted in. One class three supplement that was approved was a Sprint Fidelis uh, defibrillator. And I'm just using one of many examples, but the Sprint Fidelis uh, lead wires were made to be more flexible. And uh, the company said, yeah, it's, it's like our old wires, you know, just a little thinner. Well, the problem was they didn't clinically test them. 
And what they found was those lead wires were more likely to fracture. And when they Mm. fractured, they would trigger unnecessary shocks or they wouldn't work when they were supposed to. And I want to mention one example, just one example of how horrific this is. Uh, Listeners can go to a story about Bridget Robb, a young mother whose call is recorded to 911, and she calls them as she's being shocked 31 times within a span of less than 15 minutes by this defibrillator. And then I... I, Runaway defibrillator. Oh, it's a nightmare. And I interviewed John Mandrola, an electrophysiologist, cardiologist, who said, you know, most patients can sort of tolerate the first shock. But by the second and third shock, it rapidly escalates to panic and near terror. So this mother is screaming on the phone, please, please don't take my life. Help me. Her little six-year-old daughter is cringing in front of her, screaming, mommy's dying. Mommy's dying. These things aren't a joke when they go wrong. And they do go wrong frequently. Unfortunately, it turns out that Sprint Fidelis had been implanted in more than 100,000 people by the time the FDA recalled the device. Now, I don't know that the FDA recalled it, but it was recalled. It, it, probably um, the company recalled it because usually FDA doesn't do that. And um, what does a person do when they know they've got a device in them like that that could shock them unnecessarily? And the risk of trying to take these implants out is nothing to sniff at. Up to 16% of patients who underwent attempts to remove the defibrillators or I should say removed defibrillators, found that they had serious adverse events during the attempt to remove. Hmm. It's Hmm. even worse with things like surgical mesh, which often simply can't be removed despite multiple operations. So what are some of those things that can go wrong? Uh, For example, uh, you've got these electrical devices, then they're electrical devices so they can malfunction. Uh, but you also have devices that um, may uh, release certain toxic materials, uh, <laughs> as in the case of, actually, I think you wrote about this. Uh, this is a doctor. This is actually a, an yeah, orthopedic an surgeon, Dr. Yes. Stephen Tower. Can you tell about yeah. his story? Because this is sure. a, a really common device, as, you know, at artificial yes. hip. So many people, you know, so I'm at the age now where, you know, some of my baby boomer friends are getting artificial knees and hips. And, you know, yeah. I think of these as just remarkable uh, uh, fail-safe devices, but there can be serious problems. Yeah, and that's something I really learned in writing this book is that, you know, it's easy to think of metal or these inert devices as somehow not causing side effects like drugs do, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I catalog a whole host of devices that actually have severe side effects and complications and are even worse than drugs sometimes in the sense that they can't simply be stopped or removed Mm -hmm. the way a drug can be stopped. So the story of Steve Tower is interesting because he's um, he was a very active orthopedist and bicyclist. He bicycled something like 20 or 30 miles to work every day, um, very active, relatively younger when this all happened to him. But he his hips started going bad, and he actually specialized in uh, complex hip replacements. So he really knew about artificial hips, and he selected what he believed was the best hip on the market a metal-on-metal hip, and had it implanted. 
And it wasn't long after it was implanted that things started getting worse. His hip was hurting worse than ever, worse than it even had before the implant. And it's easy to ascribe these things to underlying disease and say, oh, your arthritis is just bad. Your bones are bad. When, in fact, it turns out it was the device. And when he went to the surgeon to have it removed, the surgeon sliced into his hip joint and said that what he saw looked like a dirty crankcase full of black oil. His flesh, the tendons and tissues surrounding his hip joint had just turned black like to black mush. And it was because of cobalt poisoning or what they call metallosis. And metallosis can be local as it was around his hip or it can be systemic as it also affected him, affected his brain. And it's also known to cause heart failure, thyroid failure, and a host of other problems. There was a really interesting case I'll tell you about. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine case history of a relatively young woman. Again, I believe she was in her early 50s um, who developed heart failure for an unknown reason. And the doctors did everything they could to figure out why she had heart failure. She had no reason to have heart failure. She wasn't diabetic. She wasn't hypertensive. She didn't have a viral myocardiopathy. She didn't have any reason to have heart failure, but she sure did. And it was so bad that first they gave her a pacemaker, then they gave her a left ventricular assist device. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty serious device that they implant in people to get their hearts running. Um, and then, um, despite all of this and despite every medicine they could throw at her, her heart still continued to fail. They finally had to give her a heart transplant. Even that heart began to fail a bit when finally somebody found out that she had two artificial hips hmm. and they tested her cobalt levels hmm. and it turned out they were sky high. So they removed both artificial hips, her cobalt levels fell and her heart began to come back to life again. It's so these are the things yeah, doctors yeah. don't know about, patients don't know about, and we often don't find out about because these companies are not being honest about all the adverse events associated with their devices. You know, of course, there's this uh, big controversy over uh, silicone breast implants. Uh, they were deemed safe at the time, but now I think it's emerged that there is some linkage to, uh, as was once suspected, autoimmune disorders. So so what's the, the deal with that? I mean, that's one of the most common types of implants. If it's not a breast implant, now people are getting chin implants. They're getting all kinds of uh, uh, little... Uh, uh, injections or uh, little uh, bags of silicone. Uh, people even have uh, butt lifts with these things. Um, what's the deal? Well, I can't speak to the issue of the uh, immunologic effects, if they exist, about um, silicone implants. I can speak to the problems of rupture, mm -hmm. and those are definite and proven. And um, there can be quite a bit of serious um, difficulties for women who have uh, uh, silicone breast implants, indeed. Uh, when it comes to mesh, I mean, this is this has been a real fiasco. Uh, yeah. What's the What's the story with mesh? Because mesh is used for hernias. Uh, it's used for uh, a surgery for women who have dropped bladders or uh, dropped uterus, uh, which often occurs in women past the age of childbearing. 
Uh, there's, there's sort of a, a mesh lift. And it makes eminent sense because, you know, it's like ultra strong, uh, you know, material, uh, you know, the stuff that they make astronaut suits from or whatever. And, uh, what ensued when this stuff was put into people? Yeah, I've seen a lot of horror cases, uh, as a result of surgical mesh. Um, I mean, first of all, it again was not clinically tested. And what we find are women and some men. And I say some men because yes, it's used for hernias. But apparently when it's used in uh, areas with mucous membranes like the um, vagina, it, it's particularly liable to grate through the tissue like a cheese grater uh, grates through cheese. I mean, it just gets so enmeshed with the tissue. It triggers such an inflammatory response, and there's so much scarring. And, and, and I don't want to downplay it. definitely can happen with hernias, too. And it may be that it's more widely used um, in women, both for hernias and for, for vaginal um, prolapse that we're hearing so much about it. But um, it, it's horrific. It causes bleeding. It perforates organs. It gets infected. And it's so enmeshed in s- scar tissue that when doctors attempt to remove it, it can break apart and shred. And then they tr- do one surgery after another. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. operative pictures of women. These, these weren't operative pictures. These were post-operative pictures. Six months after the surgery, the woman is filleted like a fish with her belly wide open mm-hmm. with sponges in her belly and attempts to drain the infection. Um, it, it's unbelievable how difficult it is to deal with this when it goes wrong. And I, I remember one surgeon I interviewed who said to me, you know, we have no idea if these things are safe or not. The companies sell them to us. And he said they could cut out a piece of curtain and tell us it's surgical mesh and we wouldn't know. And it's really funny because after he told me that, there actually was an investigative journalist yet shooting in um the Netherlands, who uh, went to uh, their what they call notified bodies, those are the private entities that approve devices to go on the market in Europe. And she took a mandarin orange bag. I kid you not, the bag that's used to hold mm-hmm. mandarin oranges. And she took it to three notified bodies and asked them about getting it approved, and they all indicated that there would be no problem with its approval. And, you know, she said to me, well, you know, maybe that won't happen in the U.S., but the truth is it already has happened in the U.S. The um, FDA already um, cleared for use a device that was specifically sized to be used only in the cervical spine, in the neck, where the bones are very tiny. And yet, it was actually intended and approved only for use in the lumbar spine, which means they were paying zero attention (laughs) to what this device was and the harm it could cause, which ultimately was death, respiratory distress, being on a ventilator for many patients. What are some of the other uh, devices that are commonly uh, implanted? You say that 32 million Americans have some sort of uh, artificial part uh, what are some of the ones that we haven't touched upon and have they been uh, proven uh, potentially harmful? Yes, Esure is the other one. It's a permanent sterilization contraception in women. And what it is are these little spiral wires that doctors insert into the fallopian tubes of women. 
And the entire intention of these little spiral wires that are stuck up into the fallopian tubes is that they will cause such intense inflammation that they will scar down the fallopian tubes and thereby block the uh, eggs from ever coming down and being fertilized. Well, the problem is, is A, intense inflammation like that can also destroy the fallopian tube and cause rupture and subsequently cause peritonitis, a serious condition that can be deadly. Um, and the wires can uh, uh, penetrate right mm-hmm. through Migrate. the fallopian Migrate. tubes and actually cause various organ perforations, which they have done. And there are pictures of women's abdomens and pelvis with, you know, five different he-short devices in them because doctors just kept sticking them in when they didn't go to the right place. So that's been a real problem. And I, I believe Eshore has already been taken off the market in Europe. I'm not sure about this. Um, reader, uh, listeners should look this up, but I believe that similar action is pending in the U.S. There's been a study that showed that women implanted with Eshore had to undergo many more reoperations than women who chose um, uh, a simpler, well, I would, shouldn't say simpler, a different um, sterilization procedure, which would be bilateral tubal ligation. You know, other than these egregious examples of metal on metal hip implants causing uh, cobalt toxicity, uh, I mean, these are really dramatic examples uh, where it's very clear what the culprit is. It, it Has your investigation revealed whether just the presence of, of commonly used, quote, safe devices can trigger sensitivity, autoimmunity, adverse effects uh, in, in sensitive individuals. Maybe not in everyone, but, you know, having, say, a titanium uh, implant uh, because of a fracture. Could it, is it conceivable that there are some immunological effects? I'm not familiar with that. I am. I mean, I've heard about it, but I don't know of definitive studies proving this. Part of the problem is, is that there nobody is incentivized to do the proper studies. Mm-hmm. Industry is not incentivized because they already have it on the market. So why test it? Um, hospitals are not incentivized because they don't want to find problems and they're not going to pay for it. And the only people who have incentive to do it but don't have the money are the patients, mm-hmm. nor do they have the means to do it. So it's a real problem. But I am familiar with nickel, and I believe that there was nickel in the – oh, I shouldn't say uh, in, in the specific implant I was going to mention. I should just say that there is nickel in some metal implants, and we do know that some patients have definite nickel sensitivity. And instead of testing the patients for nickel prior to implant, um, the company just doesn't mention it. Yeah. Okay, We've laid the groundwork for our discussion in part two. There's lots more to discuss. We're going to uh, take a look at uh, a story uh, that is uh, front and center in Gene Lenzer's book, The Danger Within Us. Uh, it's the story of uh, Dennis Fagan, uh, who is uh, a patient with a mysterious disorder. And you're going to find out more about uh, how this is related to the danger within us. That's the title of this new book, which really blows the lid off uh, the medical device industry. And uh, it's well worth reading if you are contemplating getting a medical device, uh, a medical device uh, put in, or if you are uh, uh, suffering from inexplicable side effects. Really, 
uh, is worth taking a deeper dive into the subject, as we will in part two. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.